Smartcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westman demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Wesley. No, wait. Wesley. And Wesley was just doing his best Josh Brolin impression because today we are reviewing a movie from 2013, Labor Day. It's hard to do Josh Brolin because that monotone delivery you would think is kind of cold and heartless, but he's pretty warm and fuzzy in this film. And so it's more just like manly. The warmest and fuzziest fugitive ever. Like, how you doing? And it's, I, I can't do it. It's like this weird Tommy Lee Jones, Texas drawl. He's a fuzgative. Nope. <laughs> Didn't work. A little bit. Watching Labor Day for this review was like deja vu. I was like, I remember this. I've seen this movie before. Labor Day for me for several years was going with my buddy Eric to Telluride, the film festival, obviously. And this is where I saw Labor Day for the first time on Labor Day. That weekend, anyway upon its release in, what, 2013? How apropos. You know, you talk about this being familiar. Had you seen it before? I had to have. And it's not a forgettable movie. I mean, it's a subtle film that somehow fell off of my radar. I remembered a lot of it as it was happening, but I didn't know where it was going. It was like I was watching it for the first time. Labor Day is like the Adele of Kate Winslet movies. It, like, lives in this house, and you know where it is, and you're familiar with it, but you kind of forget about it. That was really weird and meta. Because <laughs> as hot as Kate Winslet is and as good an actress as she is, none of the townspeople seem to pay attention to the fact that she's all alone in the house with Henry or whatever. They're like, oh, how, how's your mom? Oh, yeah. And the cop is like, you, know, you have a good day, ma'am. And you expect them to hit on her. And you think that J.K. Simmons is hitting on her a little bit when he brings her a bunch of peaches, but apparently not the case. It was so weird how little a role J.K. Simmons had. When he showed up, I was like, he's definitely showing up again, right? Nope. Maybe he did it as a favor to Toby Maguire. And I didn't put it all together until the end. I was like, Iris, you knew that voice. I was like so mad at myself that I didn't know that that was Great Gatsby, Toby Maguire. I knew that was Nick Carraway's voice. I knew it. I think that if you're going to track someone's whole life from adolescence to adulthood, this is kind of the way to do it, right? You spend a good chunk of your time with one character in a formative time in their life, 
And then you just fast forward with a couple other actors that you don't have to necessarily adjust to. You just kind of roll with their development. And then you end with Tobey Maguire. As as rough or abrupt as that might have been to be like, he became Tobey Maguire? Okay. It's all forgiven because of they found this random dude who looks just like Josh Brolin. Either that <laughs> or they aged him down because that dude was distractingly Josh Brolin, right? I don't know. I mean, it's hard because we have the Josh Brolin equivalent like we have the Josh Brolin from Goonies which I had to compare the other actor to you know it's like is he Bran I'm yeah kind of Bran a little bit but that's it's different though because Bran was the dorky sweatpants wearing kind of goofy little girl bike riding uh Josh Brolin yeah whereas young Frank was like all statuesque yeah chiseled and moody and and chiseled and military and yet still soulful and sensitive I guess that's the Josh Brolin M.O. Yep. How did Labor Day come to Jason Reitman? And what what an interesting pairing. I love it when Jason Reitman does these kinds of films, like Young Adults, like one of my favorite Jason Reitman films. And this seems, this is just one of those kind of curiosities where it's like Jason Reitman just figuring out who he is as a filmmaker. I mean, Juno was a comedy, but it wasn't entirely, it wasn't just like hard. It was also sad. And Young Adult definitely had some sad aspects. Labor Day kind of trends more towards the morose and this middle ground of finding love, I guess, in the middle of a whole lot of tension coming from you at all sides. But he's not really like the up happy filmmaker because Up in the Air was pretty serious as well. People seem to think this movie is like the Jason Reitman dark movie, but it really kind of is in line with his other stuff. And of course, we're reviewing Labor Day, talking about Labor Day because, well, for Labor Day and because not long after Labor Day, we're going to get Jason Reitman's newest effort, which I don't think is going to be all that introspective and dramatic. And that is... Ghostbusters after, which we should have seen like a year ago. Afterlife. Following in his father's footsteps, Ghostbusters Afterlife. Are you excited? I was super excited. Then I saw the full trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife. And I have to hope that some of the cheesier toy selling, cute and cuddly aspects that make it look really dumb. I have to hope those are like hallucinations Uh or flashback and my hopeful theory is that one of the ghosts has like a mind control hallucination kind of property like a power (laughs) and makes them see cute things because they don't have any place in the ghostbusters movie anyway it's whatever so actually in jason reitman's wheelhouse or in his universe um this seems like a perfect movie for kate winslet it's very revolutionary roadie where kate winslet does this americana housewife thing and it's always weird to see her dressed down and using an american accent but she's great at these characters that balance strength and fragility this is like kate winslet's jam sort of firm resolve but also really worried about what's going to happen when she employs that firm resolve kind of sweaty in a dress (laughs) kind of perpetually sweaty stringy haired yeah she's good at the simmer it reminded me of her role in little children where she's also sort of the beleaguered mom yes oh man that movie was tough Yeah, but good things about it. And Labor Day was no less tough thematically. It just, it didn't push too hard. In rewatching it, I was a little bit shocked to see that it was PG-13. Nothing really happens. There was no blood. There was not not real blood. There wasn't gore. There wasn't nudity uh, really at all. Everything suggested the sex, the infanticide, 
the well, I guess the murder. We see the murder. I mean the the manslaughter or whatever you want to call Kinda. it. Kinda, yeah, we see it happen. That was what happened, right? The baby was in the bath, and he was arguing with his wife, and then the bath overflowed, and the baby drowned, right? That's what happened? It seemed unreasonable anyway that the baby would ever be unattended for them to have a conversation, but I don't think she deliberately let the baby drown or anything. It's just by the time he realized that the bath was filling or whatever, she was gone. So the Frank character led a very tragic life was convicted for the murder of presumably his wife and son. And yet we see in the protracted flashbacks that the murder was more like manslaughter, more like a tragic mistake, accident. And then he serves 18 years. He escapes, right? And then he's still a good guy, but now he's got an edge. Is that his backstory? I guess. You have to be bad boy, but also with a heart. I figured this was like Joyce Maynard, the author. This was her kind of fountainhead where Ayn Rand creates these characters that she believes are ideal but are also flawed, maybe kind of unrealistic, in that he has to have all the bad boy, authoritative, super ultra-masculine, truck-driving, and yet still super hot thing that women love. (laughs) Okay. Women love that? (laughs) Because Frank is an alpha male. He's just kind of a quiet one, right? And so he he murders just enough to still be safe and hot. (laughs) Just enough murder to be safe and hot. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I guess some women got a type. Uh Uh-huh. And? And at the same time, the female protagonist is sort of a shrinking violet. She's just kind of waiting for someone like this to take control of her world and force her to make a pie and and swing a bat and stuff, you know? (laughs) Right, which is like, it's one thing if she's like, I can't dance the Irish jig or like I can't spit over the side of the Titanic, but can't swing a bat? You're like a New Hampshire neighborhood mom and you can't. Anyway, um, (laughs) was it Stockholm Syndrome or was it true love? I mean, look, Frank is a self-possessed type of dude. He knows who he is, but uh, also he seems like a good dude and he's a dad figure. He seems like the kind of guy made to be a dad, right? He knows how to do all the dad stuff and is very dadly in his application with uh, Hank. But Kate Winslet's character is, she could kind of be anybody. I mean, he did however long he did of his 18-year sentence, got his appendectomy or whatever, and then jumped out the window and got 10 years for the escape and 25 for the kidnapping. 15, 25 total. They might have been concurrent. Concurrent, right? But he also maybe, probably, hopefully got released early for what I have to imagine was good behavior. I don't see Frank throwing down in the prison yard or whatever. Well, he was in solitary for a while, which I thought was weird. Well, because he still has to be a bad boy. But whatever the case may be, he could have had anyone. I mean, I don't know that he needed the Stockholm Syndrome shut-in damaged divorced housewife because he really could have found almost anyone. So I hope that the additional 25 years, I hope that Adele was worth it. Apparently she was. Well, consider, well, considering he had five days, I guess he needed Adele's character archetype. He needed her kind of person specifically when they're at the price mark. Um, if he had yes. more time, yeah, I guess he could, you know, charm the ladies or play the field or, <laughs> or whatever. But he had one moment and then ultimately he had five days. They definitely seemed, though, like this was the 
luck of the draw, the match game of the century, like that they found each other because she needed everything, everything that he brought. And he, beyond needing her safe house and their discretion, he needed that softness in his life, that return to humanity that he, that was taken from him when he, after his tragedy. I think in this world, maybe they were fated and they were just waiting for each other. Uh, Frank kind of against his will because he was in prison. But Adele wasn't going to hang out with anybody else. I don't know that they were the only person meant for the other person. But they, I mean, they complimented each other. He filled the holes in her life, pun intended, and then she was Ew, like... was that a sex the, reference? Well, kind of, but also like all the stuff that she needed. And there's another kind of hunger. And then... And oh, then, you meant like caulking under the bathtub, those holes. And like throwing the ball around with the kid and fixing the loose board on the <laughs> stairs and making the pie and, you know, all that stuff. Basically, Josh Brolin was like the pie-making Terminator. <laughs> That's the quote, that one. And John Connor's like looking at him all dreamy and starry eyed. And then Sarah Connor's like looking over and watching them engage and like so happy for her son, but knowing that, you know, it could never be. Yeah. And then the alternate, if he hadn't gone to prison, he would have started up the drapery business. <laughs> like I said, I saw this film at Telluride over Labor Day weekend 2013. And Joyce Maynard, the author of the book, was in attendance for a Q&A. And a lady in the audience said that she just had to remark that the pie-making scene was like the horniest thing she had ever seen put on film. She was, was like, that was better than any sex scene ever, and she's going to go make a pie and find a convict or whatever. <laughs> and this leads to this strange concoction that Joyce Maynard came up with for masculinity and this forceful domesticity. Like, he's like, I'm going to fix your stare, Adele. I'm here to save you. We're going to make a pie. And, you know, and she's like, that's so hot. <laughs> and it's weird that the kid is there. Like, Henry's making a pie. It's like, don't touch our sex pie. <laughs> I mean, the sex pie scene was in her book, right? She just saw, yeah. she just thought it was sexy to see it come to life. I guess it was like ghost pottery, right? Throwing pottery. Yeah. Chicks like dudes who work with their hands. You got to keep the pie cool and the crust is very forgiving. I don't really know how that relates to sex. But it's not like a partnership either. It's like you got a tapioca so it doesn't stick. And you got to use the peaches before they go bad. And you, you got one shot at this. Help me put a roof on this house. And if you screw it up, the whole pie is screwed up. And we have to go back to J.K. Simmons for more peaches. And then blow my cover and I have to go back to prison. Yeah, there was a lot of stakes around this pie. I'm telling you, this whole movie was a high stakes pie. It was sweet and mushy on the inside and kind of crusty and sweaty on the outside and just full of tension throughout. Like it's just getting hotter and hotter. Right. It was like sexy, but also like nerve wracking sexy because she's she's like her hands are trembling and then she flops the thing over and you're like, God, this baking is too stressful. For <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're right in the sense that the simplest domestic activities are stressful. You can't go to the bank. You can't go to the Price Mart without being questioned or without you feeling like her obvious nervousness is just going to blow the whole thing. You can't even enjoy baseball, for goodness sake. You're like, you know that Barry's going to spill the beans. You know someone's going to come any moment, right? Yeah, it's really hard because Barry, we never got resolution with him. I have to assume that Hank's dad is the one who sent the cops, or camp, you know, sent him a run-in. Yeah. 
but Barry's mom, what she wasn't bad. She was like a Bridges of Madison County neighbor where she's all up in and like strolls through the front door and catches him and stuff. And But man, when Barry, for all his like pat on the head, here's my baseball cap, now you're playing third base kind of love that he got from Frank. He gets swatted in the head and you're like, Ugh. and then we never see Barry again. <laughs> That was so, I mean, is it worse to slap a kid across the face if he's differently abled and in a wheelchair? It's somehow worse, right? Like it's awful and it shuts him up good and quick. And you're just like, that's Barry's fate to be shuttled around in a chair and don't make waves and just heartbreaking. But it could have been Barry. It could have been Dad. It also could have been Eleanor. We can't rule out the hot and bothered, like, love interest. Ew. That child was certainly bothered. There's no part about that jangly-teethed little little hellcat from the big city or whatever that was hot. No? That chick was meth drama in the making. The edgy girl that comes into town, oh, man. Red flags all over the place. Red post-it notes, red puffy stickers, whatever. I mean, Hank doesn't know what he's doing. He's all, he's a big bundle of hormones himself. But he, we don't know what Hank put in his dad, his letter to his dad, right? But we know that Eleanor, the jangly meth kid, gets all the goods. Like she knows everything. And she's probably the most volatile, most unreliable friend. So it was probably her, really, when it comes down to it. I wonder for every time that Frank grabbed Adele, he didn't have any intent. He didn't want to hurt them. But every time someone would show up at the door, he'd like stranglehold him in the corner. Like, what was he going to do? <laughs> that was part of the appearances, though. I guess so. Like, like if they showed up, I got to show, make sure that they know I tied you up. Yes. Uh, I don't know, man. So I wonder if he was capable of anything. But I guess the point that aside from his bad boy persona, no one was a true villain. And also no one was got away scot-free. No one was perfect. Adele certainly had her problems. And maybe, I mean, she did function, obviously, for years and decades with Frank on either side of their meeting. But Hank's dad wasn't a terrible guy. He admitted that he was a flawed guy and that a better man might have stuck around to help Adele through her sadness. But he also wanted what was best for his kid, and he was trying to lead what he called a normal life after his tragic backstory. He just handled it differently, but it's not like he was necessarily jealous and trying to make sure she wasn't happy. Of course you're going to call the cops if your kid is going to be abducted by a murderer. <laughs> I was waiting for him to show up for sure. As soon as he drops the hint, like, you know, maybe there is a guy around. Like, I was definitely expecting Gerald to just show up. But, you know, in, to his credit, he didn't. At least not, you know, within that next day or two where, where he could have. And in that way, you thought that Clark Gregg was going to be kind of more of a player. You thought J.K. Simmons was going to show up much more. That James Vanderbeek as the cop was going to really get into the thick of it and... and be the one who secretly harbored this soft spot for Adele all these years. and Or at least threw down with Josh Brolin. Right. And then nothing, none of that stuff happened. And all of these characters were in a middle ground enough so that you weren't sure what was going to happen. And uh, even Barry's mom, you know, she was neighborly and she was kind of pushy when it came to babysitting her kid. But she wasn't bad. She brought something or other in a casserole dish to thank them for the tough, for the impromptu watching of Barry. And... <laughs> 
Aside, and, and also she was mother to a, a disabled child who I can imagine that can be frustrating. It just that smack across the face when he was on to something. I don't know if he was going to rat Frank out or if he was just making the association and noticing, you know, recognizing him on the news broadcast. But that whip crack slap was pretty brutal. But that doesn't mean his mom was a bad person. No. Oh, I'm saying all these characters were middle ground. She was like, I brought the cinnamon rolls, but uh, can I get my pan back? Right. You know, it's a little bit of the, it's both, right? It makes her a very human person. And maybe they were all human people and well-rounded enough so that it wasn't cartoony. There were no villains or real true heroes. It's, they're just sleepy New Hampshire small town residents. But there was enough there that everyone knows their place in a New Hampshire town, right? You can be all up in people's business and be like, Hank, this is the man's razor. You need the lady's razor, the pink razor, and all that stuff. And in the first day of school, and when anything is even a little bit out of place, and the small town bank, where there's no reason to suspect, look, you either are like, Adele is pulling some kind of weird drug deal, and she's like, big time now? Or... It makes sense that she's withdrawing all this money because there's a convict in town and that's where the convict is holed up. But otherwise, everyone's all up in her business because her business is 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 routine. I mean, I think it's obvious to us, but I don't think anybody would put weird, erratic behavior by Adele. Like, yeah, she she doesn't come into the bank. She's always sending her son. But when she does come in, she pulls out a whole bunch of money like that doesn't seem so I mean, it's suspicious anytime. Right. But like it didn't surprise me when the bank managers like, OK, what could this woman possibly be doing? She's just weird and she's going to do weird things. Yeah, she's going to take it to the Indian casino and blow it all up, blow it all. She's going to be like, she's going to put it under, her, stuff it under her mattress and sit on it because, you know, she's scared and, and neurotic and anxious and anxiety ridden. I, You know, what I also wanted to bring up was Lucas Hedges, little Lucas Hedges. Then he looks like he's like 15. I mean, he's just perpetually like Manchester by the sea young. That dinner scene was so great and was so important. Lucas Hedges is a necessary foil to Henry's character. It's a important scene to Henry's arc because he is able to assert himself with his dad or with his other family that he doesn't feel connected to. Being reassured in his security with his in his family with his mom and his newfound dad figure, you know. There's the moment where there's a little bit of uncertainty that they're going to take him to Canada. And when all is well in the world and he knows that he's part of the plan, he feels secure. He feels like he can assert himself with his dad and differentiate himself from this family that they try and fit him into. And Henry does an awful lot of just standing by and watching, taking things in. But he also has great opportunities for him to try out what he's learned. He uses Frank's philosophy on the truth. Truth is always the best misdirect in the bank. He plays baseball, he bakes pies, he loves to dance. Like he, t he takes all these things from this five day experience that changed everybody's lives. And yet for all the validation that Hank gets from Frank, hey, Hank, Frank, that's weird. His ability to be a little bit more assertive, less of a passive observer is what blows the whole thing out of the water. There are two things that prevented me from thinking they would ever actually go to Canada, right? You didn't really think that they were going to go. I was projecting on this movie the scene where they, you know, they roll through the checkpoint and everyone's all nervous and tense and stuff like that. Like, I totally thought I was going to get that scene. And then that they were going to be run down 10 miles from the border or something. 
Yeah. But him standing up for himself instead of just going along, knowing what the quote unquote right thing to do would be and leaving to a, a note for his dad, who he presumably wasn't going to see again, is what got Frank busted again. But it wasn't just him. It was also Frank's insistence and obsession with cleaning that house. Like every time it's like, it's time to go, but we got to clean all the rooms. Because it's the right thing to do. Stop cleaning and just go. Listen to your mother. We got to go right now after we clean some stuff. <laughs> they definitely prolong that. And it just, the tension just mounts. I mean, but there was some delicious tension. It was, it's really hard to reckon how they're going to get out of some of these situations. And a lot of tension built up around people giving long blank looks or seemingly blank looks. It is something that most of the tension was the score and how long Jason Reitman let these things linger. It almost felt, like you said, slow and dreamy in a kind of virgin suicides kind of way, but also it's almost like it was slow-mo, but I don't think it was. And a whole lot happens told almost entirely through looks. But you wonder if the characters are as much in the know if they don't have those that particular framing. It's hard to know what everyone is feeling. It's just the way the camera is positioned. It, the camera is positioned in such a way that we understand what the director is going for. I think that's a great thing to point out because we get a lot. I mean, Henry is our narrator and it's very story appropriate because Adele and Frank are super caught up in their love, in their plans, in getting to know each other, into figuring out how they work together. So they're like preoccupied, whereas Henry's the observer and he's also our conduit. It's a coming of age story on a very small scale because his parents, like so many other 80s parents in 80s movies, this one is set in 1987, are... Not absent, just not a part of their kids' lives necessarily. And that seems to be the point. Adele was certainly all up in, you know, Henry's life because that was her thing. That was what she had. You can see from the very first moment her sort of nervousness at him getting dressed or whatever, you know, and from the very beginning, her whole role, her definition was Hank's mom. Yeah. And then when that shifts, he's shiftless on his own. He's left to his devices to make out with meth head and, and roam around and get him trip himself up and get himself in trouble. And yet he's such a good kid. Like he minds his mom. He takes care of her. He gives her husband for a day. He manages to cover the majority of the time for this whole ruse. He goes on bank and food runs like he's a good ass kid. I think because he has to be. But yeah, he'll act out. I mean, he sought out the only meth head in town. <laughs> he d he did seem strangely attracted to her. Because Brodchick in the classroom, that was a different girl, right? Yes, I think it was. Because I think that meth head was probably more of like a back of the room chick with <laughs> eyeliner. <laughs> and not someone that would sit in front. So... You wanted to review this more than just for its timing. Amazing cast. They just keep coming. And I thought that this would be good ahead of Ghostbusters Afterlife, depending on when you're listening to this. But also narratively structured. This seems like someone's first film where you would notice the talent and the deafness in being able to juggle multiple backstories. In particular, the unfolding of Frank's story 
seems routine, fairly pedestrian, and yet there was enough overlap and enough new information imparted that I didn't mind continually flashing back to round out his story and his motivation. Because I don't think it mattered. I think that Frank is Frank, and he's a he's an everyman, handyman, hands-on kind of dude and Adele was going to love that anyway because she didn't know the particulars. I guess he explained it to her on the porch or something over lemonade, but I don't know that it mattered that we had to be on board with Frank necessarily. I mean, did you need a full explanation before you could approve of Adele being taken care of and finding happiness again? Did you need to find out why he wasn't the murderer that they said he was? Well, he was, I mean, he was the murderer. Yeah, but the circumstances under which it happened were meant to redeem him in the audience's eyes. And while I'm not sure that that was entirely necessary for us to like his character, which I think some people did and maybe some people didn't, I at least appreciated how Jason Reitman was able to deftly intercut the current day with the flashbacks, which he felt were necessary. I'm not sure that they were, but it was enough so that it was like, oh, that's interesting and it's ambiguous enough to where he could still be the villain that everyone sees him to be. Or it could be just his wife was kind of a pain and running around on him and is the baby even mine. There was a lot there that was balanced and nuanced kind of throughout. I appreciated his ability to tell a rounded story that otherwise largely takes place in this little house in New Hampshire. A beautiful story of redemption told in a very tense, very compelling, yet deceptively simple kind of way. Labor Day definitely gets a good, and I'm happy to release this on Labor Day. I don't know that it's a must-see, but if you like any of these people, I don't think anybody really dragged this movie down for me. And so obviously I give this movie a pretty high all right. I think it was a solid entry all around. And there you got it. That's our review on Labor Day. A solid all right from Wes and a good from Iris. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Or Whatever Movies. We'd love to hear what you think about it. You can call us. 818-835-0473. Or email us at orwhatevermovies at gmail.com. But thank you for listening. Special shout out to our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate your patronage. Thanks and happy Labor Day. And see you next time. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's no, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Electric acid.